Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It's misunderstanding and myself holding the fort today. We've got two fantastic guests on. So first up is um, Dr Jo Peel, who did her medical training in Manchester in the UK. And she is a fully-fledged sexual health physician. And her um, she's completing her specialist training in infectious diseases at a very lovely hospital around the corner from here at the Alfred. And she has a special interest in also in HIV medicine. So we're going to welcome Dr Jo. Morning, Dr Jo. Hello. <laughs> and then we've got a Associate Professor Suman Maj- Majada. Have I? Maj- Majumda. Majumda, I've got it. Who is the um, Deputy Director of... Um, health security and no C19. I had to Google no C19. It's our COVID program. <laughs> <laughs> Knowledge. Knowledge, yes. But we have to shorten everything, don't we? Yeah. No C19. Yeah. So that's in the health department? Uh, yep. that, that's at the Burnett, actually. Uh, at the Burnett, yes. okay. Yeah. You're also the co-head of tuberculosis, elimination and implementation science working group that's got to have an acronym there somewhere. It doesn't. We, you know, we, that's why we put these long things on the <laughs> website so no one reads them out on radio shows. <laughs> oh, okay. And a principal research fellow at the Burnett Institute. He's also an infectious diseases physician, a public health practitioner and researcher with extensive experience in global health, has personally travelled the world, and in clinical care and public health in Australia. He has appointments at the Alfred Hospital, Epworth Healthcare and Monash University and has also got a very interesting job as a Deputy Chief Health Officer in Victoria in the Victorian Department of Health. Some of the places he has visited um, and worked in is PNG, Myanmar, Timor-Leste, Central Asia and Southern Africa and um, Georgia, which was a former um, Soviet Union. I'm going to be talking to you about your travel experience, Dr. Suman. Um, anyway, so, and we've got misunderstanding here, so she's ready at the, at the call, and I think we might just check in with everybody. How are you this morning, Miss? Yeah, I'm good. Understanding? Yeah, I'm excited to talk about infectious diseases. Yes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's terribly popular or topical. Yes, it is. I mean, I've had one. I had COVID a few months ago. It was awful. So... <laughs> Keen to learn more on how to prevent those. Oh, good. Yeah. I think we've all had many infectious diseases over our lifetime. Yes. Yes. I'm not sure I would be willing to confess if Dr. (laughs) Joe talks about anything, if I'll be (laughs) confessing to any of those infectious diseases, but yeah. Okay. And Dr. Joe, how are you this morning? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm good. very excited to be here. I've never oh. been on the radio before. <laughs> First time a Dr. <laughs> Panel Beta. What do you think? Oh, you don't have a headphone. <laughs> you don't have a microphone. <laughs> Doesn't have a microphone. We've had lots of first timers in this show, um, and Dr. Suman. Oh, do you want uh, associate professor? It's a bit, yeah, Dr. Suman. Just yeah, Suman would be fine. Suman, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Suman. But no, thanks so much for having yeah, me on. It's a pleasure yeah. to be here. I have to say that 
Um, I do rally the troops because I work in an infectious diseases unit at a big Melbourne hospital and I often target, if ever we're going to do infectious diseases, I target people that have been walking down the corridor. I think you might like to come on the radio. I think you <laughs> might. <laughs> Hence, there's always been a strong ID flavour in, in my guests. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Misunderstanding, I think you have something that you wanted to share with us, something that's been in the news of late. Yes, thank you, um, Nurse Happy Pen. So this is won't be about infectious diseases, so a little bit of a um, topic shift. But has anyone in the studio ever been fubbed? Then what? Fubbed. <laughs> I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, I think it's phone snubbed. Oh. Yeah, so there was an um, article released in um, Psychology Today this um, on the 8th of August talking about um, fubbing. And so it's, I guess, basically just when you're in a conversation with someone and they um, get distracted by their phone and then start using their phone um, while you're having a conversation with them. And so not only we might find that annoying, but some research is showing that it can impact your physical and mental well-being. Um, mm. So research has shown that fubbers and I'm not sure if this is the word they used in the article, but I would like to coin the term fubby, mm-hmm. um, will have more negative emotions like anxiety and depression. And it can also impact your relationships um, and your parent-child relationships or your intimate partner relationships and those that are being fubbed may be more depressed. Um, and so, again, this can have impacts in the workplace. Research has also shown that if you're having a conversation with your boss and your boss fubs you, um, you know, there's an internalised sense of, I guess, your value and your work value feels decreased. Um, so what can we do about it? I know that actually since reading this article, I have to admit I have fubbed and I've also been fubbed. Um, so I guess it's just about building awareness about doing it. Um, and if you are entering a conversation or joining a conversation, thinking about is this the best time for me to be in this conversation or am I going to be distracted by my phone? Is Am I expecting a call or a message or an email to come through? Um, and perhaps even try to be um, open about what you're doing. Just, oh, sorry, can we just pause for a sec? I need to address this. Um and I guess on the other side, if you are being fubbed, I guess it's all about being very gentle and perhaps non-confrontational and just gently asking the person who's fubbing you um, whether it might be a more appropriate time or it might be best if I come back to have this conversation um, and just being that genuine and being soft. Um, and, and a big thing as yeah, a psychologist, when you are in a conversation with someone, it's always important to remain or practice active listening, which is a favourite term of ours, but that's using minimal encouragers like, mm-hmm, yes, reflecting back what the person is telling you to try and stay engaged in that conversation. Um, and I would also like to coin another term because I have found it annoying and perhaps you might agree with me on this, but now the introduction of the is the Apple Watch and people... Um, I think I thought of it, was it wabbed last night? So watch snubbed or I'm not sure if I pronounced that quite correctly, but I do notice and I find it quite frustrating um, in conversation with the people. And I think there's the perception that it's more subtle, just a flick down at their phone, scroll, oh, sorry, their watch, 
scroll through a message and then rejoin the conversation. I've noticed that. So I hate having notifications on my watch. Turned it all off. Oh, very interesting. So what is it about this addiction? What, what, what's happened to us? I don't know. COVID, I think, I've, yeah, I've noticed in myself, my ability to concentrate on a TV show even that's longer than 20 minutes is very, um, yeah, I like to scroll on my phone as well as watching a TV show and it takes a very special show like Succession or Severance, if everyone, I really want to talk to people about that, but um, to keep my attention for, um, yeah, the full episode. Yeah, well, we were talking to Dr Joe about this in the green room and you suggested that, what well, you've done something active about not being on your phone all the yes. time. Yeah, so I have started removing Instagram from my home, from my screen on my nice. phone. And then I noticed when I did that, like, I got a little notification saying your screen time has gone down by, like, so many hours this week. Yeah, like, the screen time. Well done, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> That's yes. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I'm a, not a fan of Apple Watches. Yes. I just yeah. think it's too, everything's too on you all the time. Too accessible. Yeah. Yeah, mm. agree. What about you, Dr. Suman? Uh, I think I've I've been fubbed and I've been fubby. <laughs> like it's, it is a, a increasing epidemic, isn't it? Yeah, like, yes. I think it's it's that combination of having um, all this information and connection we want to process, but we lose being in the moment with mm. people. And I think you're right. We, we do have to just call it out and renormalise it because most people are probably not aware. I mean, I, I was called out at home by my yeah. partner, so oh, yeah. and I didn't realise I was doing it. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. it can yeah. be so Social. unconscious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, well, I've got a really interesting one because I'm going to promote a woman. So I don't know, has anybody heard of Dr. Yo-Yo? Yu-Yu, Dr. Yu-Yu, spelt Y-O-U-Y-O-U. To Yu-Yu um, is this amazing woman I abs- accidentally sort of stumbled upon on an SBS Famous People's um, documentary. And she was born in 1930 on the east coast of China and education in her family was terribly important and um, she was at school when she contracted TB. So she was very unwell and I don't know what the treatment of TB back in the 1930s might have been like. Pre-antibiotic era. So. Uh, indeed. Mm. So just cleared the bacteria herself, do you think, Dr Suman? Yeah, there was, so there was um, some parts of the world was a sanatoria era, so you'd have fresh air, you'd isolate yourself, it's something we're familiar with now um and depending on which part of the world but yeah usually you would you would have to just um go through uh, progress of natural infection Mm, mm. um anyway so after this illness she decided she wanted to study medicine and cure diseases which is quite a strong um idea for herself anyway she did she so she was working as a scientist and north vietnam contacted china through their health department i'm assuming for help battling malaria because there was a tremendous number of casualties um, during the Vietnam War and this single-cell parasite, malaria, um, was causing lots of deaths. And at that time, there was some resistance to chloroquine, which had been a gold-standard treatment for malaria. And so she launched a project called 523 in 1967, um, looking at trying to cure the chloroquine-resistant malaria. So she, having a Chinese background, decided she was going to go back through all of these old um, documents looking at 
cures. So it's they're from the Zhu, Qing and Han dynasties to find a traditional cure for malaria. And she found the um, in uh, the recipe for artemisinin. Have I said that right? Mm. Artemisinin. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. it's a tricky word, which is a famous drug for treating malaria. And it's still available. It's it's the cornerstone of, of malaria treatment. Yeah. What? There, well, that's yeah. another topic we'll have to come back on to. Um, anyway, so she she was she um, rediscovered this thing from the Chinese herbal documentations, and um, she won a Nobel pr- uh, Prize for Science. And she um, one of the things she did was she took the artemisinin, and um, she. Um, worked that it was quite safe to take and you will all remember that there's um, Barry Marshall in WA who was uh, challenging the treatment of gastric ulcers and he swallowed some of the um, the murky components <laughs> that gave him an ulcer and then um, identified H. pylori and then gave him and then they gave antibiotics to treat the the, the H. pylori and the gastric ulcers or that was causing them. <clears throat> so she is, she's my new pin-up woman and I think she's absolutely extraordinary. She's 94 now. She's very humble. And when she was given the 2015 Nobel Prize, it was in physiology or medicine. It wasn't clear which one it was, so maybe it was a, a double-named prize. But she believed that every scientist dreams of doing something that can help the world. Hmm. Are we all on that mantra? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm. <laughs> okay, so I think we might launch into speaking with Dr. Joe. Um, misunderstanding, would you like to um, sure. chat with Dr. Joe? I'm very excited to talk to Dr. Joe about sexual health. I think um, it's a, I guess, an interest area, and I guess um, psychologically speaking, about normalising, reducing shame associated with sexual health. Um, but Dr. Joe, if you just want to give us a little bit of an intro about what you do or what you're interested in and what you want to talk about today. Yeah, sure. So I'm Jo. Um, so I've done, as Penny said, I did my sexual health training. Um, so I worked for a few years at Melbourne Sexual Health and I also worked at RPA in Sydney as well. Um, and now I'm doing infectious diseases. So I hope that uh, I'll be able to, in the future, kind of work in both of those areas. Um, and I guess particular interests of mine are HIV medicine. Um, and then also, um, I think with STIs, kind of bringing them more into like an open forum mm. so people can talk more about them, normalize them, reduce stigma. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, just so that people have kind of more of an awareness about what STIs are, how they're transmitted, and reduce a lot of these kind of negative associations with promiscuity or dirtiness and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, Yeah, definitely that, I guess, that dirtiness and that shame. Yeah. Yeah, I've um, been aware of those kinds of themes coming up. Um, And so what's, I guess, the best kind of way or what do you think is a good space to focus on in kind of reducing those and increasing awareness and reducing the, yeah, I guess the stigma around dirtiness. Yeah, I think, I think it's really funny in how we think about infectious diseases and different types of infectious diseases. So for example, if you work in an office, you are, you're going to get colds and flus, Mm. right? But if, and if you have sex, even if you have 
one partner versus 100 partners, you're going to get STIs. Like STIs are out there and we're going to get them. And even if you use condoms and mm -hmm. do that all the time, you probably might still get STIs. So I think it's about accepting that they're out there and that we are all susceptible to them, even if we are clean, even if we use condoms, even if we have one or 100 partners. So I think it's about educating people about that and also about the response. If you do get an STI, mm. like what's your response to that? And taking away that oh my god I'm so shameful I shouldn't mm. have had sex I shouldn't be doing this um or that partners I can't believe they had herpes and they mm. didn't tell me mm. kind of really like reducing that the shame and the blame I think um and I think that only comes from talking about it and people being honest about their own kind of experiences yeah absolutely so uh, um, Joe, it's um, Nurse EpiPen here. Um, so with this new launch of getting consent for sexual uh, encounter, mm. do you think at that same stage you could ask, have you had an STI test or...? Is... Yeah, look, I, I don't think you need to ask those questions. I don't think consent, obviously, definitely, yes. I don't think you need to, when you first have sex with someone, go into a sexual history... And I, I, I sometimes think actually that can be a little bit stigmatizing by saying, you know, have you, have you ever had a screen? I, I don't think it's a bad idea to have that conversation, but um, I don't think you necessarily need to do it off the bat. And I think there are different ways to, to go about it. So generally what I think is take steps to reduce STIs. So use condoms if you want to use lube. So lube can also reduce risk mm. of STIs because it reduces the friction and breaks in the skin. Um, so that can be good. And then I think, look, if you want to then be with someone longer term or you think, okay, I'm going to have sex with this person ongoing or I might want to have an emotional relationship with this person, then you can say, okay, look, so far we've been using condoms. Maybe we want to stop using condoms. Have you had an STI screen recently? Um, and then they can say, yeah, blah, 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 or no, blah, blah, blah. And then you can be like, okay, well, let's either both go and get an STI screen mm -hmm. or just have more of a conversation about STIs that either, either one of us have had. Um, and then think about stopping using condoms then. Yep. Yeah. Um, out in the green room when we're chatting a little bit before, you mentioned herpes. And mm. I find this is quite a stigmatising and... Um, shameful, I guess, S T I. I, yeah. Oh, I <laughs> used to be D, yeah, now it's I. D, yes. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about herpes and, I guess, the normalising and yeah. opening up about Yeah, herpes. sure. Yeah. I can tell you a bit about a lady that I saw fairly recently. So, actually, in clinic uh, recently, I saw a lady. So, she was in her late 50s mm -hmm. and, sadly, her husband had passed away a few years ago. Um, and she'd recently kind of started getting back out onto the dating scene and she had sex with a few partners, developed some symptoms, went to see her GP, had a swab and the swab came back showing she had herpes type 2. Mm -hmm. uh, so she had this diagnosis of genital herpes and actually her symptoms weren't that bad at all and she didn't really need much treatment for her symptoms. But the by far the worst thing for her was this kind of this shock, this shame, like mm. she was devastated that mm. she had herpes. Um, and there was lots of blame and kind of anger towards the other person. So I think it's really important, particularly as a clinician, when you're seeing people to remember that it's not just treatment. It's not just, here's a script, 
see you later. It's this can have a really big impact on someone's mental health and also their ability to kind of form relationships in the mm. future. Um, and um, yeah, I think it's really important to tell people how common herpes is. So it is really common. Up to about 30% of people in Australia and wow. New Zealand have genital herpes. And that can be type 1 or type 2. And actually now in younger people, we see a lot more genital type 1. Um, so tell people how normal it is. Like you're not alone. It's just that nobody talks about it. Like if we looked in this building, one in three of us have, has had genital herpes. We just don't go around and say... By the way, everyone, I've got herpes. Yeah. Um, so it's really common. For the most part, it's completely harmless. So yes, it causes sometimes these annoying lesions, but they go away. They're treatable with antiviral medication. So usually it doesn't cause any problems. Um, and then I think um, you can kind of talk to people about how to broach that with partners yeah. as well. Yeah. And, and yeah, and how would you? So um, I, again, because herpes is so common, we probably all, if you're having sex, you're probably coming into contact with it, right? So I don't think uh, that you need to say to someone, before you have sex with someone, I have herpes. So I think uh, a good approach is to do everything you can to prevent transmission to another person, so condoms and lube, um, until a time when you think, okay, I might want to stop using condoms, mm. and then you have the chat about, whether or not I've had a screen. It's, a, it's always a good idea as well to not have sex sorry, when you have lesions um, because right. we know that herpes is more likely to be passed on when you have lesions. But it can also be passed on when you don't have lesions and that's called asymptomatic shedding. Yep. Yeah. So condoms and lube until you want to stop. When you want to stop, have a chat. Uh, have you had an STI screen? And then what you can say is actually, I had a screen a few months ago. It showed that I had this virus. It's called herpes. So far, I've done X, Y, and Z to prevent passing that to you. Um, but, you know, if we do stop using condoms and we have sex ongoing, there is a risk I can transmit it to you. There's a high chance you may already have herpes, but you don't know that you have it. That's actually really common. So you can say that to someone. Um, and then you, you, then you have a chat and see what the person says, and you can give them information about where to look to find out more information about herpes. There are, there are some really good websites where you can do that. Um, and actually, they did a study in London recently, uh, last year, and um, it looked at people who had had these conversations with mm. their partners. And they found that in 83% of cases, this did not result in rejection. So wow. actually, yep. when you do have these conversations, people are like, oh, okay, like, thank you for saying that because that's taken the onus off me. Now I can tell you, oh, God, I had chlamydia that time. <laughs> and it's, not, it's not like a shameful thing. Yeah. It's just yeah. like... It be. It's, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Um, and you can be like, you know, like, thank you for, you know, doing those things to prevent passing it to me. And, and like, usually I think if it's someone that is... Um, willing to kind of learn about things and, and show empathy and acceptance and respect for people. It's not, it's not a big issue. Great. Yeah. Um, so, and uh, Dr. Joe, where can people go? What's, what's their first port of call if they do notice a lesion on their genitalia? Yeah. So um, if you do notice a lesion or something that you're not kind of sure what it is, a really good place to go to is a sexual health clinic. Um, so Melbourne Sexual Health Centre is a great clinic. It's on Swanston Street in Carlton. Um, 
It is, uh, they are all sexual health specialists. They're very, very experienced there and the nurses are incredibly experienced as well. Um, and the best test for herpes is a swab of a lesion or a blister or a skin split. Um, and that detects herpes DNA in the lesion. Um, you can also go to a GP um, and some GPs do have a lot of experience in sexual health. Um, so a good idea sometimes is if you're going to go to a GP, look at the bio for the GP mm. and see if that GP is interested in sexual health. Um, what else? Some doctors will offer a blood test for herpes. We don't love the blood tests. So the blood tests look for antibodies to herpes and they don't tell you when you might have acquired herpes. They don't tell you where you've got herpes. So you might have cold sores and your herpes test comes up positive and it's just not really very helpful so genuinely like gen generally in diagnosing we like swabs not blood tests okay sounds good oh, thanks very... nurse i've got yeah. so many questions yes. <laughs> um oh, which is my most important one okay so you mentioned cold sores and yeah. you mentioned type one and type two yeah can you talk about i guess the transmit like can you transmit um cold sore herpes virus to genitals yeah, that yeah so um transmission of herpes is basically skin to skin contact um and that can be oral to genital can be oral okay. to anal can be genital to genital or genital to anal contact uh so if someone has cold sores yes they can transmit type 1 herpes to a genital area um, it's much rarer for someone to have genital herpes and then transmit it to someone's lips, like oral. Okay. Lips. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> um, so yeah, so yes, you can, but it's usually cold sores to um, to genital area. Does that right. make sense? And oh, sorry. Thank. Um, Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Joe, for um, <laughs> sharing all you know. I yeah, I'd love to have you back. I've got so many more questions, um, but I've learnt a lot, and I'm hoping our listeners have learnt a lot as well. And hopefully, we can start to normalise and encourage those that openness and conversations yeah. around um, sexual health. Mm -hmm. Indeed, and that was the Melbourne Sexual Health centre in Swanson Street yeah yeah, yeah. give and that a the, big plug because um, they're amazing yeah there. they're very good very a really good. good website is Herpes Foundation New Zealand that mm -hmm. has some really good information for um, patients and clinicians as terrific. well yeah. terrific Fantastic. thank you thank Dr you. Joy. this is a podcast from Triple R an independent media organisation in Melbourne Australia Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. I think we're going to give Dr. Zuman a go on telling us all about himself, how he got into medicine, and TB, and if we've got time for working in the health department. Thanks, EpiPen. That's a, that's a broad <laughs> ring for a monologue. I'll, I'll see how I go. But, um, 25 words or less, please. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, thanks. I'll, look, I'll, I'll start just by um, saying thanks again for having me on. So I, I work um, at a couple of places at the moment. I, I work, I've been working for nine years at the Burnett Institute, and some people may know of, of the Burnett in Melbourne. Um, we're a not-for-profit independent medical research institute, as well as a international health NGO. So we deliver programs overseas, and that's just, that's the area I've mostly worked in, um, uh, particularly in tuberculosis. Uh, with a large group of 
people um, both in Australia and, and overseas. So it's been a real privilege to be working in that space. I'd love to talk to you about tuberculosis, which is um, one could say it's a forgotten pandemic. It's an mm. airborne disease like COVID-19 and um, the similarities are, are striking in terms of what we must do to, to go forward and and, um, and uh, also uh, the issues that it affects perhaps uh, people that have less... Um, sorry, more disadvantage mm -hmm. in our communities. Um, I also work clinically as an infectious diseases doctor, um, but less so uh, recently. Um, and that's where I have been accosted by you, Nurse EpiPen. And, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so look, I'll... I'll um, I can start probably by, by talking about tuberculosis and just some facts, if uh, that's okay. But, for, but before you go there, where, how did you get into medicine? What's, oh, that question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and infectious diseases. What's your story about that? Um, with, with medicine, I, I guess it was like most people, there's a people that listen to this show, fascination with the sciences and, and also the other aspect around, you know, an, an altruistic notion of service that, mm. that, that people have. And um, But when you're... You know, 19 or 20, you, you choose what to do and you see where you land. Um, so uh, with infectious diseases, it was probably the intersection with global health because um, mm. early on noting that, that, that infectious diseases do cause um, a significant strain. That You know, non-infectious diseases are, are equally important, cause, you know, heart attacks and strokes, cause more illness and, and deaths um, broadly than infectious diseases, but um, the inequities in infectious diseases are really what's what's striking. Mm. Um, but most of the time in medicine, you just work with people that you like and then you end up following them along and then you do that when you're, <laughs> when you're a trainee. So I think that's what happened to me. Yeah, great. great. And um, t so TB, what's happened there? Yeah, so, so TB, um, some, some key facts. So it's an airborne disease. It's a bacteria that, that passes from person to person. Um, it's been the the largest single killer from an infectious diseases in humanity um wow. it's it's been with us um for 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 thousands if not longer so it's been found in in um ancient mummies and from 4000 bc um and uh it's so it's been a, a bacteria or a pathogen that's been really really hardy and it's found a way to transmit um between people uh, it could even be older than that from from some studies um, but um, it's something that we wouldn't know about here in Australia, right, um, because it's largely been controlled. Uh, it still uh, does cause illness and disease in Victoria and Australia, but we have a very low rate. And what people may not know is that we actually had a, a huge um, public health program in the 1950s. There was actually um, a massive effort by government um, for, for TB screening, there was legislation passed, there was um, financial incentives given to people. Um, I'm presuming you weren't around that time, EpiPen, so... No. No, no, definitely not. No, no, that's right. <laughs> um, so, but through through concerted public health actions, we 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 can actually control and end or eliminate infectious diseases, particularly ones that spread through the air. So we do have um, some antibiotics that we can give people with TB, but there's also some resistance to some of those antibiotics, which is pretty scary. Yeah, unfortunately, any time we do give treatments to anything like STIs, there is resistance emerging. Um, so having having biomedical tools is really important. So we've got, um, it's been a bit slow with TB in terms of what we have. We have a vaccine, but that's not so effective in adults. It's good in kids. 
um, we have a test, but the tests are PCR tests, which aren't widely accessible or available um, and a bit more expensive just due to the way the market forces work. Uh, and we have treatments which are um, cheaper and freer, but there's also new treatments being developed. But um, because the, the, the bug grows very slowly, it has a lot of opportunity to develop resistance. So we do see drug-resistant TB, and that, that is a, a, a real serious concern globally, um, because as you get more resistance, those usual drugs don't work. Um, I would like just to sorry backtrack a little bit, Suman. Um, can you tell me what um, TB is and what... Are the symptoms of TB and what's the impact of TB? Um, yeah, that's a yeah. I should have started with those <laughs> basics, of course. Um, so, so TB is a disease caused by Mycobacterium tuberculosis. So it's a it's a bacteria. Um, it's it's primarily spread in the air and so it enters your lungs, but it actually um, multiplies in your lymphatic system, so mm-hmm. next to your lungs, and it can cause disease outside the lungs. So, um, and we see a lot of that in. Australian hospitals, people presenting with lymph node disease or disease spread in other organs. Um, If you're more immunosuppressed, you're you're slightly more likely to get disease outside the lungs. But primarily it's a lung disease and it can present like a pneumonia. So so cough, shortness of breath, um, and it can be a prolonged um, or a um, set of symptoms that that goes over Mm -hmm. many weeks. So you mentioned that it's kind of transmitted in a similar way to COVID. Is that right? Is it? Related, because it sounds. I guess your description just then of the. Uh, it's not. It's not related from okay. a from a pathogen point of okay. view, but but it is a good conceptual way to think about pandemics, right? You think about things yeah. that are spread through the air, uh, like uh, respiratory diseases. You can think about things that are spread uh, through blood, like um, HIV and viral hepatitis, and you can think about things that are spread through vectors, like um, malaria um, and other mosquito-borne diseases. They're sort of the major global health diseases and then there's sexual health diseases we didn't yeah. talk about earlier as well. Great. And um, some of the blood tests, So, that, would you like to mention quantiferon as a... Yeah, so that's an interesting um, uh, area. So there, there are two types of TB. There's active TB, which is when you're sick with the disease, and then there's a thing we call latent TB, which is having the infection, but you haven't got the sickness or, or the illness. Um, and that's that's very common in the world. So we estimate that a quarter of the world have had um, the infection with TB, and they'll, they, that, those people may test positive on on two types of tests that we have. One is a Man Two test, which is under your skin. People may have had that um, um, some years ago. We've sort of stopped doing that very routinely here in Victoria, but um, it's a little bleb under your, your your forearm that gets that gets red after a few days. Well, there's a, the blood test equivalent, which is called um, an IGRA, an IGRA. Uh, and one of the, the, the manufacturers is, is a quantifuron test, and that can tell you if you've had infection. It doesn't tell you if you've actually got the disease, though. Um, if you have an infection, though, um, the other part of TB treatment is, is taking what we call prevention um, treatment. So you can treat latent TB so you don't, it doesn't become active TB. And, and what are the, um, the mortality rate? What's the, I guess, yeah, the, um, if you get it? If you get it, what happens? Yeah, yeah. what happens, yeah. <laughs> Um, so most of the TB in Australia, first I'll say, is, is people that have uh, acquired it either overseas or they have been born overseas, had infection, um, and then arrived in Australia, and then it then it reactivates in, into into active disease. Um, untreated um, mortality rates can be forty to fifty percent. Um, mm. And we've had treatment since um, the nineteen sixties has been quite effective treatment. There was earlier treatments around the thirties and forties, but they were not so effective. Um, with treatment, it's it's 
almost universally curable. Oh, so great. Unless someone presents very, very late or has significant immunocompromise, but we're, we're talking, you know, well above 90 to close to 100% cure rates. It's a curable and a preventable disease. Yeah. And the treatment is long-term. Isn't, don't you take the antibiotics for quite a period of time? Yes, um, the current treatments for, for drug-sensitive TB are, are around six months. Um, for wow. kids, it's now down to four months. Um, for drug-resistant TB, it used to be two years, and it used to involve injections. Um, now, that's been a huge area of neglect in science. So so other thing that's really fascinating with TB, it used to be one of the diseases that had the most research. Um, it was, uh, people may have heard of um, uh, the... the uh, British MRC, the Medical Research Council, the, and the, some of the first um, randomised trials were done on TB. Oh, wow. Uh, in medicine, were done in TB treatments for streptomycin. Um, but since then, there's been a sort of a 1970s onwards, a bit of a neglect in research and, and development. So we haven't had new drugs. We haven't had new research on how to shorten TB treatment until very recently. Um, so there's been now drug-resistant TB treatments that have taken the two-year one down to a, a six-month regimen. Mm-hmm. Dr. Joe, have you seen TB? I have seen TB. Um, yeah, I was just chatting about a patient that I had fairly recently who was um, interesting. Um, but I could could I ask a question? Absolutely. Um, so in Australia, obviously TB it's not incredibly common. Who are the priority populations where we need to be thinking, like, could this be TB? And what you talked about, like, um, socioeconomic, like, determinants of health. Um, what do you think? How are we, and I think that does apply to TB, how do you, what are we doing to kind of try and reduce those to mm. help these kind of priority populations? Yeah, really good question. So in, in Australia broadly, we have um, higher TB rates in our First Nations people, um, particularly in the, in the top end. Um, so the, the, the rate in Australia is around, uh, I think it's around seven per 100,000, the rate, in, and in Indigenous Australians it could be, uh, it's been as high as 15 per 100,000. Wow. But um, so that's, that's one group. Um, and the second is our, um, as I said, people that have been born overseas or, or come from Households are exposures to people that have re- had recent travel overseas, so migrant communities and multicultural communities. Um, so, uh, and particularly around uh, our refugee groups mm. is, is uh, one area where we've had a lot of focus in, in screening. Um, and we do have a Victorian TB program that that um, that has a public health approach um, to to controlling TB in the mm. state, and every state and jurisdiction in Australia has the same. Um, so there are a dedicated and wonderful bunch of people in every state that do this work and they go and do contact tracing uh, wow. as one intervention, which everyone's yeah. familiar with now. Um, so that's been a cornerstone of, of TB control. Very good. And um, your travel overseas <laughs> to Myanmar and Timor-Leste, and have you what sort of um, numbers of TB patients have you seen? Um, yeah, most of my work as a clinician has been when I worked with um, Médecins Sans Frontières um, for, for a couple of years and, and I had the, the privilege of um, working in a, in a part of the world which was uh, in the Caucasus, which was on the, the border of Georgia and Russia, where there was one of the longest um, drug-resistant TB programs that, that MSF um, ran um, because in that part of the world there was a lot of available treatment, um, but there was a very fragile and decimated health system. So that's when infectious diseases 
um, to rise and spread. And, and to Joe's point, um, I think both COVID and TB have have shown us um, is that, that that these diseases do really affect um, people, affect society unequally. So there are, there are the socioeconomic determinants, and there are what we call the, the structural barriers, mm. which really um, skew um, who gets affected, and, it, and hence we really do need um, bottom-up public health mm. approaches to, to address them. Um, so to answer your question, I, I looked after um, a, a, quite a few hundred people with drug-resistant TB. There was there's quite a lot in that in that um, that, that community um, with a team, obviously, and. Um, um, uh, and, and since then, I've, I've been working in Papua New Guinea um, with, with the Burnett and, and with colleagues uh, who've, uh, where we've been, there's a team on the ground that, that, that does um, a lot of our direct support of, of Australians and Papua New Guineans supporting a TB program in a number of provinces uh, over there where there's a lot of TB. And you were protected in what way? How did, I mean, you didn't get TB? Oh, or maybe you... I haven't had TB uh, and I haven't had latent TB as far as I know at this point because I wear a mask and I've been wearing um, uh, respirator masks um, since I've been working in TB hospitals, um, you know, since since 2010. And um, you often wear these N95 masks. We wear them all day and um, we reuse them and and there's certainly things that um, that do work. Um, And TB is probably not as infectious in terms of, the, the direct uh, risk when you're with someone who's got infectious TB, but but um, when you're working in those wards, uh, there's a lot of um, infectious bacteria around in the air. So right. through masks and ventilation, yep. you can reduce spread. Yeah. And vaccines? Yes, so vaccines... Um, I can't remember if EpiPen, if you provided my vaccine, but you might have. Um, but I did get a I did get a BCG vaccine. But as I said, um, that that doesn't um, protect adults against spread. That was just something that that we had recommended for people that were working in um, these areas with lots of drug resistant TB because there wasn't many other tools. But there is research on TB vaccines underway. But every time you ask a vaccine researcher, it's always around ten years till uh-huh. there's a better vaccine. It's a difficult part of science, yeah. but it really needs more investment. So the TB vaccine I had as a school child, school girl, is that's is it waned? Have I got appropriate cover antibodies? Um, un- unfortunately, it's not doesn't offer protection in adulthood. Uh, it will last, you know, for maybe ten, fifteen years. Um, but it does protect. So it's a birth dose vaccine in in high transmission, high burden areas. Mm. So I could give you a new one, Nurse Abbey-Pan. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Um, and uh, do you have any? Um, yeah, so what do you think... Sorry, I've got a few questions, but I'll, this is my favourite one, I think. What do you think the um, renewed interest in it has been in, I guess, the research for um, yeah, vaccines for TB? Yeah, I mean, the renewed interest overall, I think, and I think COVID's brought this to our, yeah. to our forefront, is that um, we're all in these issues together and we're in a connected world. Um, but but also as a health and development issue globally, um, um, these diseases do hold communities in, and they, they keep them in poverty. And mm. if, unless you actually address um, and, and address diseases that are, you know, if you get TB and you're... you're uh, working in Papua New Guinea or Indonesia, you then, if you're sick, you can't work, you can't yeah. provide for your family. It, there's, yeah. there's, there's major consequences and, and um, what we call there's this catastrophic costs for people and it, and it has a, an, a massive impact um, beyond the health issue for the individual itself. So 
as a development issue, um, it's really important to, to control these um, uh, infectious diseases, which is wh why we have a global goal to end TB by 2030, which is well off track due oh, to COVID, due to COVID yes, impacts. Yep. Um, and it's also, you know, it's a difficult case to make, um, but it's actually quite a cheap intervention when you look at things at the end Great. of the day. Mm. Yeah. And speaking about sexual diseases and oh. TB, I found a, an article from 1933 linking TB and syphilis. Do you mm. two know about that? I'll have to send you the article. I'll have to have a conversation. 1933. <laughs> um, I think pre-treatment, pre-antibiotics, but there were links for TB and syphilis. So maybe it was, as you were saying, in poverty areas where low hygiene and um, yeah. uh, um, public health measures to prevent infections. Yeah, I just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> <laughs> Dr Joe, do you have any quick questions for Dr Suman before we wrap up? Um, no, I think that was my... Uh, the only other thing, the TB vaccine, I heard it was better at preventing leprosy. Is that true? It, so there's a lot of research around... Um, the, it's called the BCG vaccine yeah. and it leaves a scar on your arm and, and it, it, it will have some effect on leprosy and yeah. other diseases. So there's been a lot of research around the collateral effects of this vaccine because on, on, it, it just modulates your immune system. Yeah. So there was a, a trial led um, by colleagues out of the kids' hospital here that, that was a global trial of BCG and health workers for COVID even. So there's a lot of research. I have to say I'm not a vaccine person and it's immensely complex around yeah, what yeah. the immune system does. <laughs> but, but at the moment, it's not a, not a game changer. Okay. okay, so in wrapping up, I'd really like to thank Dr. Panel Beaters so much for helping us on the panel today. And Dr. Suman, Dr. Joe, and Misunderstanding. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.